Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm good. Um, and, uh, and I'm particularly excited uh, because listeners, we are continuing our series uh, on U.S. federal government cabinet departments. Yes. And in today, Nia, we're not so much talking about a department as we are a position. A general. Yes, yet another general. <laughs> uh, the the listening audience could not see me, but I just saluted Augie with a very poor salute because I've never served in the armed forces, but I was trying. But done rather enthusiastically. It was enthusiastic. <laughs> was almost put out an eye. Um, I was but, afraid you're. I was afraid you're going to go ahead and take up your, your computer there. Yeah, don't don't. Okay, so. The thing about the about these episodes that I love is that, okay, now, it's about every conversation that I have with you. There's always this learning experience that I have because I think that I know a thing, right? I think that I'm just sure of a thing. Yes. And then you're like, turns out that thing that you thought that you knew, not so much, or you knew it partially. Like, I had no idea that the postmaster general was not an american made thing. oh no no oh yeah and it's mostly because i'm an american and i assume that all things start with america so yes. like i have a bad habit of that you know unless you tell me something is from somewhere else my assumption is that it's from america isn't that terrible i should i should be a better world citizen well, but i'm not i'm so I, I when i noticed in your notes i'm like wait the British have postmasters general? Like, wait, <laughs> yes. it wasn't our idea? That seems, you know. Um, and Oh, and we should note for our listeners, we have done a post office episode before in season, season, two. season two, episode six. Yes. We talked about the post office. If you will note, it is the episode after our lovely episode with Hillary about stamps. Oh yeah, that's we, a really do, good. we did a whole little postal thing there. Yeah, that um, was a really that was a really good, if you will, uh, uh, double episode. But um, that was mostly about the why of the post office, yes. and and this is more about the leadership and the early days of the post office yes. and the post yes. specifically the postmaster general, because what we're talking about are um, cabinet members yes. for the president. Right. Yes. So that's kind of why we're going through these individual. But anyway, who knew that the British have? Well, I mean, I guess the British know that. Oops. Well, but, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe their citizens are, you know, kind of sort of like citizens of other countries. Right. They do um, all kinds of things, I think, at their post office. Like, I think they can cash checks and they can do all kinds oh, yeah. of yeah cool right stuff at there that our post although our post offices also do cool things and what i think is great is is the first postmaster general of the united states was ben franklin yes was ben franklin well, and which, ben franklin was a gossip oh 
like a huge <laughs> yeah. gossip. Right. And if you know anything about your local post office, especially in a rural town, we have discussed this in past, that is where all the gossip lives. If you want to know yes. what is going on, on in a small rural town, you, you hang out to, at the post office. Yeah, you go to the post office. And uh, so it, it amuses me deeply that Benjamin Franklin, who, as I said, was a known gossip, like he... He always wanted to be in the know with who was doing what and where and how that well, he was the it, first it, postmaster general. That just makes me happy. Well, and in part, that is reflected rather nicely in the fact that for a good chunk of Ben Franklin's adult life, um, uh, he was a newspaper publisher, right? Right. Again, I want to know and I want to tell other people. People, yeah. And, um, but <laughs> you know, Nia, you're talking about, you know, one of the reasons why you like doing this podcast is you end up finding out like new stuff or cool stuff or, you know, um, your uh, perception of of a particular government document or institution, you know, gets somewhat changed. But that's also one of the reasons why I like doing research for a park podcast episodes is because I end up finding out stuff I never knew. So I'm, I, I wasn't really aware that the office of postmaster general had its roots in Great Britain. And I didn't know that that was one of those things that got transferred to the American colonies, right? Okay. Of course you need a postmaster general. general that, right. Okay. Who knew? Um, who knew and, that was and, a thing? And, and of, of all the things that I thought I knew about Ben Franklin's wonderfully diverse, accomplished life, I don't know why it never registered in my mind that he was appointed by the Continental Congress as the first postmaster general in 1775. He had served as the deputy postmaster for the British colonies of North America, okay, since 1753. He'd been doing it all that time. I had no, <laughs> no idea, idea right? that he had been doing it all that time till I saw your notes. I did yes. know he was the first postmaster general because it's often a trivia question in pub quizzes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I didn't know. I thought that he just came cold to the job. Yeah. Sure, I'll be the postmaster general. I don't know what that means, but I'll do it. Yeah. I had no idea that he that he'd been doing it for twenty some years. So he, yes. I'm sure he was like, I could do this in my sleep. I've I've been doing this for twenty two years, so, and then, yeah. and then sort of basically he didn't stay very long, right? Like he wasn't. No, no, um, and. And I guess if you think about his age, he that would have been one of the factors, right? Because mm -hmm. if he if he had been doing it for 22 years and people didn't live as long as they live now. But I, I do think it's interesting that they're like, hey, could you take all that expertise that you have and create a system yes. that's now under the American government instead of under the British colonial government and from my research he definitely um kind of sort of you know set the norm or the culture for what post 
you know, the United States Postal Service would end up becoming, which is a way to connect the country. I mean, right. he, fir he firmly believed in the, in the fact that if the American democracy was going to um, succeed and flourish, that uh, the postal system played, would play a key role in making sure that Americans um, knew what was going on, knew what was going on in their government, and they could be connected to one another. And, 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 and remember, listeners, you know, early on in uh, U.S. history, the country was, with a few notable large city exceptions, was basically wilderness, right? Right. So, I mean, how do you go ahead and... I guess when you think of right? all the stuff in between the cities yes. was more or less wilderness. Yes. It okay. was what we would call rural. Yes. Very, okay. very rural. But um, what I, I think is is an interesting question. Okay, so we established, I think, in our, in our previous episode that um, the post office was in large part because of the commerce clause right you have people selling stuff across borders yes. and there's all kinds of questions with that <clears throat> and still are today that's still a an active part of government um policing is things that are sent through the mail yes. right they they they're constantly looking for stuff like that but and as we all know, just as a side note, every single causal factor in the universe comes back to the Commerce Clause. Commerce Clause. <laughs> yeah. Why gravity works on you? Commerce Clause. Why the Earth revolves around the sun? Commerce Clause. Why do volcanoes explode in Iceland? Commerce Clause. There's, there's some, it always comes back to that. And notwithstanding Nia's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> somewhat cynical and sarcastic view of the commerce clause i was going to go with um exaggeration okay fine. Okay. um the view of many of the framers of the u.s constitution and uh, of the young country was that one of the ways this young country um, could actually survive was the connections that would manifest because of commerce right um and and whether it is you know um uh, goods and services and you know one part of the country that then could also be enjoyed by consumers in another part of the country or innovations in in you know new york okay could be shared with you know, people in Virginia or the Carolinas, whatever the case may be, you know, that's that was definitely a view that you saw not only with Benjamin Franklin, but, you know, um, you know, most prominently John Marshall, uh, who ended up becoming Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court and had a rather robust or expansive view, um, as Nia just indicated, uh, <laughs> about the Commerce Clause. Yeah, me and me and Marshall. I'm just yes. saying, yes, I'm sure that when his dog barked, he was like commerce clause. Um, <laughs> but but well, I want to but you did point out something interesting about Ben Franklin and the sort of beginning of the post office, which is that 
also he was interested in delivering news from one place to another. another. He was very yes. much interested in the colonies being in communication with each other, that there was that it was important for the the burgeoning United States to have well, a communication backbone, a communication system. And think about how important communication was in regards to uh, the Revolutionary War. Right. Okay. Um, you know, one of the easiest things that Great Britain could have done to, you know, thwart the rebellion um, is to pit one colony against another. To go ahead and say, for instance, you know, South Carolina is loyal to the uh, to the crown. But, you know, having a functioning postal service allowed those across the colonies to communicate with one another about how, you know, not only are we upset with the crown. But so but are our neighbors and our neighbor, yeah. cousins in another you know, state. States, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and again. Yeah, if you cut communications you tend to do better in a war than if you don't cut communication. That's right. Okay. Right? So, and when you think about communication at that time, this is way before wireless. This is way before any system like that. Postal was the communication system. So, but I want to ask you, was Benjamin Franklin part of George Washington's cabinet? Uh, no. Okay. Um, I mean, in 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 Ben Franklin in in Washington knew one another quite obviously, um, but um, the the Washington administration didn't think <laughs> all that much about the postmaster. Okay, the postmaster general. I mean, okay. Washington appointed a postmaster, etc. But the postmaster general position did not become a cabinet position until 1829 in the Andrew Jackson administration. Okay, so that's like 50 years on-ish. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we had postmasters, or excuse me, postmaster generals, okay? Um, but it was Andrew Jackson, interestingly enough, um, who made it a cabinet position. And, and by the way, um, and this is going to be, uh, listeners, one of the themes of the remainder of this conversation. It probably makes a lot of sense that Andrew Jackson made the postmaster general cabinet position because for most of the history of that position, the postmaster general was kind of sort of viewed as the distributor of government jobs known as patronage. Oh, so like amb ambassadorships and that sort of thing well, okay you're talking you're talking about more than likely nia lower level government jobs oh right? okay okay so you're going to be in charge of the local post office or you're going to be in charge of uh, the, of the state or the colonial in your area post office and as we know since that controls communications it has a huge influence on, on slowing information down or speeding information up or, or okay. the, 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 
again, in our previous podcast episode, remember, Nia, we talked about how in many rural communities, the United States Post Office is the face right. of the federal government. And is highly respected. Yes, right? Like, that's a good job to get. I mean, oh, that's yeah. a, there's, so if nothing else, just because the pay is good and the, you know, like the, the perks and the benefits of having that job are a good, solid middle America type mm-hmm. job to have. That's right. Okay. But if you think about the Jackson administration, Andrew Jackson ran for president in part arguing that most federal government jobs could be performed by average Americans. Okay. <laughs> okay. He had a huge problem with the elites in American society. He had a huge problem with the elites in both political parties. In part, remember, um, uh, he thought he lost the 1824 presidential election because some of the elites in his own party, um, uh, when the election um, went into the House of Representatives because there was no victor in the Electoral College, um, Jackson thought that some of the elites in his party sold him out. Okay. Right. So, you know, he was considered a populist, right? And part of his populist, if you will, campaign was um, many, most government jobs could be performed by average Americans. And when he took office as president, he made the postmaster general (laughs) a cabinet position. And basically, well into the 1930s, the postmaster general sort of became the distributor of the spoils of government. You know, this is the reason why it becomes known as the spoil system, right? What are the okay. spo- what are what are the spoils of government? Government jobs. I was going to say decent paying jobs. That's right. And you reward- with with a fair bit of security. That's right. And you reward your supporters with a nice middle class secure job that will keep them voting for you each time they go because it's in their best interest to do that. And as long as you did what your political superiors wanted you to, you kept your job. Okay. If your political party Main, you know, continue to win elections. Guess what? You were able to keep your job. Your job. So, in the modern vernacular, we would call that nepotism. Sure, or cronyism. Right. Okay. Oh boy, network that yeah. sort of thing. But as I point out in my public administration courses, you may not hire in patronage, the best person for the job. But it does promote democratic accountability because the people elected individuals to represent them. And those people gave government jobs to their supporters. And you only Mm. keep your... Ah, if you're talking about democratic accountability, okay... You only um, keep your job if your if boss you, keeps their job and yeah. they keep their job. 
by keeping the voters happy. There you go. So in terms of majority. That feels a little slimy, Augie. I'm just saying. Okay, but that's fine. But how often do we hear <laughs> even today, Nia? Okay. I, I love that response. That's fine, except. <laughs> okay. But how, how often do we hear today, okay, that, um, uh, you know, the career civil servants in the bureaucracy are largely unaccountable to the public? We hear that all the time. We do hear that a lot yeah. in certain circles. There's okay. a lot of argument about that. It it goes, usually, if you don't like what they're doing, okay, well, and it that goes tends in, to be your feeling, and so and it goes in cycles in regard right. to the political parties. Right now, exactly, Republicans don't trust um, uh, the uh, experts in the bureaucracy. Um, at various points in the past, there were Democrats who were like, you know, those entrenched civil servants. Okay are unresponsive to the base of our party. But in terms of democratic accountability, um, the patronage system, okay, furthers that. But you don't necessarily get the best person to do the job, right? Because you've got the job because of who you know, who you knew, instead of what you knew. Can I just okay. though say that, um, in defense of of middle management, you know, <laughs> bureaucrat, middle middle level bureaucrats. Okay. That you may not have known, like it may have been who you knew to get the job, but generally people rise to the occasion. Uh, it has been my optimistic experience that most of the time. When some government official is harming me in some way, it's because they don't know they're harming me. If they knew that, they would generally say, oh, let me see if I can work the system and figure out a way not to harm you. Like, okay. I, I think, it, and maybe I am a Pollyanna, maybe I am optimistic, but I think that probably a lot of people would be grateful to get those jobs, would want to keep those jobs, would want to do a decent job in part because, and hear me out on this, they were in the community with people they knew. Well, and in, so there, I that, think that is that's, one of the positives of patronage. Right? right. Is that, and I think when you're talking about a reinforcing of the democratic principle, you do get to this point of, there is some level of accountability to your neighbors, to your close associates, where people would say, I know that Augenbaugh, he isn't worth a dang, and you need to get him out of there. And they might, in fact, say that to a politician. Because those aren't always, like, you don't get that job and keep it forever. Sometimes they get rid of you because you're so unpopular in your local in your local area that they're like you've burned every bridge we can't we can't keep you there and in part you keep your job if your political superiors keep their jobs right so there is a motivation to go ahead and satisfy a majority of potential voters in your community in your state etc okay and you're not you're not going to go ahead and maintain that support, I would argue, if you are frequently giving bad service, or you're not delivering what the government set you know promised the people of your community that it would deliver. 
Right. It works both ways. If you are really cruddy at a local job, you could harm the person's election chances, chances, which will remove both of you from those jobs. Yeah. So there. So okay, I can. All right, I will. I will allow that there is accountability. I was originally thinking. I think Augie's got that wrong, but turns out your 20 some 30 some years of administrative law experience are probably playing in here um in in, in what i how i explain how i explain it to my students is that they're not civil service and patronage are not diametrically opposed right right because even career civil servants know that they can do a better job if they have the support of the public they are supposed to serve right right and likewise with patronage if you are a politician and you're giving out government jobs to a bunch of incompetence okay who end up upsetting large swaths of your electorate you will be removed. You're going to be removed. Right. right? So it's more of a sliding scale instead of, (laughs) okay, polar opposites. Because the way it's usually presented in academic textbooks is that, you know, patronage is good in terms of furthering, furthering democratic accountability and career civil servants are good at producing, quote unquote, good government. And what other scholars have have suggested is it's more of a sliding scale. Right. If they don't produce good government, they are punished by (laughs) either being removed by their patron or their patron being removed. Removed, right. And so it behooves them to be somewhat good at the job. And for, you know, career civil servants, as we have discussed in other podcast episodes, if you don't make the public aware of your programs, if you don't take their responses into account, um, you're not gonna do a good job and it may harm you in the next budget cycle or the next president appoints somebody to run your agency um, that um, is going to force significant reform and change. So you can't be completely unresponsive as a career civil servant. I mean, Nia, just think about this. You know, for instance, in many ways, we are, you know, you and I are civil servants who work for a state agency, <laughs> right? Okay. Right. If we are unresponsive to the students, that we are supposed to teach and help, okay, and guide their research, et cetera, et cetera. Think about how that affects our annual evaluations right? and and whether or not we end up getting future, you know, contracts to work for VCU. Exactly. At some point, they will let me go if I don't do the job that I am been hired paid, to do. right paid yeah. to do okay they will stop paying me to do that and if you think that doesn't happen in the universities uh that's wildly inaccurate it happens all the time that they say and this will be the last contract that we offer you good luck finding a new position sure 
which is the university's way of firing you gently. Yes. But they, they do let people go all the time. I want to ask you, so you gave dates. Yes. For the Postmaster General being a, a cabinet position. Yeah, 1829 to 1971. What happened in 1971? Uh, well, oh, Was that Nixon? <laughs> Did Nixon just be like, ah, no Postmaster General for me? No, we talked about this before because uh, in the previous podcast episode, right now, listeners, um, uh, uh, Nia is giving a fake question, okay? Because um, in 1971, uh, the United States uh, Congress um, uh, reorganized the post office department into the United States Postal Service and made it uh, in effect, government corporation, government corporation. Um, so the postmaster general is now a CEO. Yes, yes. And is technically appointed by the board of governors of the United States Postal Service. And, and those, thus needs a different skill set. Yes. Than in previous, than previous persons who were in this, in that service. That's correct. Because a person who's really good at distribution, right? Like Ben Franklin, like you were talking about being yes. a newspaper individual. Yes. That's not what's, that's not what is important as important now as a person who can manage people and budgets and time and oh, right, yes. all those uh, like this person is now a ceo of a corporation that is a different skill set it's a completely different not completely but it, it requires somebody to in effect run a corporation right, right? and which is why since 1971, they have been people who have run corporations, corporations. right? Yes. Like they, yes. we look to the private sector because we turned it into a, a government corporation and we're like, you know what we need? We need a CEO. We should go find one. And, and so don't have, be surprised when they act like that. Don't be surprised right. when they make decisions Yes, that are clearly based in the business aspect like they're already suggesting that there will be a huge slowdown at Christmas, right? Yes. Because they simply do not have the manpower, person power, not manpower, person power. Yes. And that it, things are going to be more expensive. Trucking is going to be more expensive. Gasoline's going to be more expensive, all these things. And they are saying you should just gear up for the fact that we're a business and we're going to have to act like one. And people are up in arms about that. And I, think that's interesting like well we don't get to have it both ways well in particular when the united states postal service was created by congress uh, it gave the uh, postal service a rather specific mandate like any corporation its expenditures are not to exceed its revenues you have to make money Okay, and ask Amazon how hard that is for the first seven or eight years of their corporation. Well, they did not make money. And and unlike some of our other government corporations, I'm looking at you, Amtrak. <laughs> the United States Congress has, has not provided any subsidies to the United States Postal Service. Yeah, right? they have to be independently 
like in like, the yeah, uh, uh, fiscally balanced, right? Okay? Um, and and let's face it, most federal government agencies, okay, Aren't. are are not run in the black, right? They're not. <laughs> okay, they're not. You know, you know the, the 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 ledger doesn't look good for most federal government agencies, which could be a completely different you know podcast episode, right? But the United States Postal Service has that requirement, which means that, you know, and we saw this last Christmas, as gas prices were rising, okay, um, we still had uh, restrictions related to the, to the pandemic. Um, uh, you, the, you, uh, the current um, uh, uh, head of the United States Postal Service, okay, he, he came up with a reform plan last year that had members of Congress in both political parties irate. Yep. But, you know, his attitude or his approach was, you know, you hired me, okay? The Board of Governors of the United States Postal Service hired me in part because they wanted somebody to um, change the service, okay? Well, and he just raised the rates, right, from 58 cents to 60 yes. cents for a stamp. I know you and I are probably the only people in the United States other than the elderly who use stamps. But but that rate increase had to do with the cost of delivering mail, right? They have gasoline. They have maintenance on vehicles, which right now, good luck with that because of the way the supply chain is working there's all kinds of issues and, and they're they're dropping their forces dropping because as people retire other people are not taking those jobs so there's also some of that involved but yeah people get all mad at him and i'm like but he's doing what we asked him to do which is to run a corporation that stays in the profitability margin yes and he doesn't get to have one of those calls with his stakeholders the way Target does and say, well, we're down about 42% this quarter. Like, he doesn't get to do that. No, because even things like raising the, the, the price of an individual stamp has to be approved by the Board of Governors. Right. <laughs> right? He is, the, he, his hands are a bit tied. Well, but he's it, still held to all these. Yes, in 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 it, and this is a remarkable transformation. And Nia, I'm glad you went in and honed in on this. The postmaster general went from basically the head of federal government patronage to now running a corporation. And let's face it, when you're the head of federal government patronage, yes, you can make enemies. But you make a whole bunch of friends because you're basically giving a whole bunch of people what? Candy. Yes, you're, you're giving, giving, <laughs> giving them all gum, the things they want, right? right? You're giving yes. them position and prestige and money and power, and they love you. Mwah, yes. mwah, mwah, they love you. And then you come along with the in 1971, we come along and we go, turns out, yes, we're gonna need you to, and we're gonna need you to fund your your liabilities going forward well it, it, and that's a huge one and we talked about right your retirement we it, talked it, about that in the previous episode i mean the, the only corporation in the united states that is legally required 
to have enough cash reserves to cover current pension liability and future pension liability. You notice that there are many things that I have said I wanted to be. I do not want to be postmaster general. The the hands, the, the tying of your hands in that job are just amazing. And everybody hates every decision you make. But there's no, there's no nobody way. ever says, gosh, I love that postmaster general. Like that's not, Ben yeah. Franklin was probably the last loved postmaster general. <laughs> Uh, it, it's so unfortunate because it's it, and, that, and, that it's and, been in and, and, and think, and, and think about this uh uh the united states postal service is going to have a huge issue in regards to its vehicle fleet because right what's going to happen in california when their vehicles can't run on gas like yes Okay. Oh my goodness! The, the, there are so many follow-on effects that people don't think about with the terms of you know how many vehicles they have that they would have to replace just in California. I, I, and, and and I know I'm a, somewhat of a policy geek. <laughs> okay, probably gross understatement. I like how you said someone. Okay, and I like how I can hear laughter from your students in my apartment. Okay, <laughs> but think about. In, 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 so when the United States Congress recently, in regards to when we record this podcast episode, uh, passed the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, a huge chunk of that law was to provide incentives for Americans to no longer buy gasoline-powered automobiles. And then California followed that up with... Okay. By night, by twenty thirty five, there will be no more. There will no more new, selling. Yeah. Right. New vehicles yeah. that run on gasoline Clean. only in California. But here's the thing that got me thinking. That law also applies to federal government agencies. Right. Okay. <laughs> when California sneezes, the entire country, oh, I'm including not, the I'm federal not, government, gets I, a I cold. I wasn't even talking about. California's law. Oh, you mean the federal uh, the reduction, okay. reduction act? Okay, is to provide incentives for Americans in the next fifteen years to buy more, okay, electric vehicles. Right, and the federal government is going to do that with its own fleets. Fleets, and one of the largest fleets in the entire world is the United States Postal Service. Yep. So you're running the United States Postal Service right now. <laughs> and you've finally gotten it into profitability just by like, we made $20 this year. We feel really good about that, right? And they say, oh, we're going to need you to replace your entire fleet I, 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 in the next 10 years. You're I, like, I, what, I, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that, Augie. That's and, terrible. And, 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 I'm, and I was just like. If we oh, don't have... see, that's one of those unintended consequences, listeners, that Augie always warns us about, where we're like, we're going to go forward and we're going to do this thing and it's going to be completely fabulous, right? We're going to build this dam on this river. And he's like, um, you know, that's going to flood these 16 cities and cause all these people <laughs> to be homeless. And, and, and we're like, oh, okay, well, maybe that's not a good thing. Like, this so is if... the law of unintend unintended consequences. consequences. So we don't have enough <laughs> supply of... Non -gasoline, of regular 
of non-gasoline powered vehicles now. Okay? <laughs> this is going to be so bad. Imagine. I mean, I'm laughing in somewhat of a hysterical way because I did not even think of that. See, that is so administrative law of you to be like, you know, if you pass that, this is one of those consequences of that is that unless you can ramp up production. So now we're going to be back to a situation to once again, the United States federal government is going to get pressure from automobile companies, okay, for subsidies. Right. To You want us to make these fleets. To change our inventory, okay. And hire the, more people and have more lines. and Okay, I mean, and, and you want to talk about inflation now. <laughs> if we don't address, okay, the potential demand for non-gasoline-powered vehicles, um, I'm... And again, the twenty percent of, of the seventies will look idyllic. I mean, I, I'm just like, you know, before we start incentivizing and requiring new, you know, customer and demand behavior, we should probably make sure we can cover that. Yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. That's an excellent point. Okay, so so we should feel really sorry for the for the postmaster general because that's about to be a terrible job like it was already a rough and tumble job job can i just note by the way you said that the general is uh appointed by the board of governors but don't they still have to go through senate confirmation um technically no no okay no. okay so when we were talking about the uh current head of the united states postal service um um the governors, the board of governors appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. So, oh, um, you see what okay, I'm it's about one here? removed. Gotcha. Yes, right? Gotcha. Okay. It's one yeah. removed. Yep. So, just um, have we had, uh, can we talk just a couple minutes about some of the more noteworthy? We have had a lady, a, a, a woman be in charge of the, of the postmaster, she's there's been a female postmaster general, right? Yeah, Megan Brennan. She was uh, uh, appointed at the tail end of the uh, Obama administration. Yes. Okay. There has not been a person of color as the postmaster general, um, uh, and there's a couple other noteworthy postmaster generals um, that I highlighted in my research notes. Uh, one was the postmaster general appointed by President Woodrow Wilson, and uh, his name was Albert Burleson. Burleson is known in part because he used the authority given the, the then United States Postal Department. He was given authority by the United States Congress to restrict any mail that spoke against the World War I mobilization effort. Think about that. So if you didn't like... Let's just say, for instance, you were a member of an organization who thought the United States should not 
participate in World War One. Okay. And your organization, okay, printed up and sent out, okay, a bunch of flyers, etc. I was going to say this is a court case, isn't it? Is this a? Uh, uh, well, this actually uh, led to um, uh, uh, Shank versus the United States. Okay. Okay. Uh, Shank, who was a socialist, produced a whole bunch of pamphlets, um, <laughs> some of which he mailed. Ah, down with it. Don't burn your burn your. Um... No, he actually advocated that people just not register. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK. Not burn your draft card, but just don't register. OK. Yes. And so so Burleson said, you can't you can't do that. That's yes, you can't use our system to subvert yes. our system. And by the way, I'm uh, not going to allow that. OK. Yeah, OK. Um, Another postmaster. I mean, I'm not sure that I disagree with that, right? Like, I don't know if you, I mean, I, there's a part of me that's like, oh, First Amendment, right? First Amendment rights to say certain things. But there's another part of me that says, but should the government have to provide to you the medium? Right. The medium <laughs> through which you do that. I mean, I, ah, that's a sticky, thorny question. That's yeah. not an easy question to answer. Yeah, the classic dilemma in constitutional law, right? Right. Do, okay. Should the government allow you the open green to stand up and say the government is a fink? I mean, right? In, like, do, you, do they have to provide you that space? Particularly since, you know, you're talking about a government authority that's clearly established in the U.S. Constitution, right? Right. You know, the war power, right? So that's interesting. Okay. That's a, that. Sorry, that just takes me to the place of if you're on campus, does campus ha should campus be required to provide you a space where you get to complain about the, the university. university administration, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> or do they? Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, and we do at BCU. We actually have spaces. Yes. Yes. For complaint because we believe in. First Amendment freedoms and the right to yeah, and, and, and the right the, to the right to complain. And once, right? the, and once the university creates a public forum for that kind of speech, then the university's hands get restricted in regards to regulating speech, right? Oh, because they've given you an open place to so, oh I see. It, it becomes so a in, public in Burleson's argument, part of that may have been if we open this door then it will be a floodgate. Like we we do well, not but, want to be, yeah. we do not want to open this door because then it calls into question. Yeah, and, and, and you, you know, the United States Congress uh, also during uh, the 1940s, 50s and 60s uh, gave the United States Postal uh, 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 Department, again, before it became um, uh, the United States Postal Service, uh, the, the Postal Department had the authority to um, prosecute individuals for uh, distributing um, obscene materials via the mail. They still have that, don't they? Yes, they do. Okay. Yes, they do. Right, because if you, if you mailed something that was clearly illegal, child pornography, for instance, or some other thing, they, they would swoop down upon you and... Oh. Oh my goodness! And, and and we're okay with that, actually, especially in that instance. Well, they, um, they have an entire. But also, like they they check the mail for illegal substances. They check the mail for 
Oh, well, all kinds of things like that and particularly post 911 right and i know that that in some instances if you the way you get around that is you don't mail it outside of a state right it doesn't become mm. a, a an interstate thing it is only an intrastate thing but yeah no i mean they have to check for things like anthrax and all kinds of crazy stuff that gets sent in the mail it is hard to be a postal worker sometimes i'm just saying that sometimes you walk in there and they're all kind of chatting and hanging around and stuff and you think oh this is a pretty easy job and then you think yeah until somebody mails a bomb to somebody or something right like well and i certainly won what which we not- had a period in the 70s where people were doing that so yeah, yeah. And, that's and how I, the unabomber anyway i certainly would not want to work uh in a post office um uh, at christmas time right or in Washington, D.C., where lots of angry people mail things. Yeah, right. I mean, so, so, you know, tough work, I would say, tough work. Uh, there's a, two other um, uh, postmaster generals that I want to mention before we conclude our episode, Nia. Okay. Um, uh, one, and I'm not going in chronological order, was William Blunt. He was the first postmaster general appointed by the governors of the you know newly created u.s postal service in 1971 so he was the first ceo yeah first ceo okay but probably the best example of a postmaster general as the distributor of patronage and i heard him i saw him referenced in easily five different books and articles (laughs) that i read okay was James Farley, who was the postmaster general for President Franklin Delano Roosevelt from 1933 to 1940, okay? So this is the this is under the patronage system, not under the CEO system. System, that's right, okay? okay. Was he just amazing at doling out? Oh, incredible patronage (laughs) the the roosevelt administration the the president himself basically deferred to farley on farley's decisions to reward or punish okay people in regards to government jobs right that's saying something because fdr was a bit of a micromanager oh sure he was but it was Farley's belief that those who supported FDR's campaign should be compensated for their loyalty. And if you were a member of Congress and you were a member of the Democratic Party and you didn't support the New Deal. Oh, man, he made you sorry you woke up in the morning, huh? Farley would go ahead and fire people in post offices in your congressional <gasps> district or state until you um until you caved until you saw the light wow <laughs> so james farley not a man to be messed with <laughs> i was reading some of these examples nia and i was you, just like you know augie dude. i think we forget sometimes just how um, corrupt a system can be 
I mean, this is power politics 101. Right. When people talk about now in the system, I'm like, well, you need to think about the bosses of cities. Oh, yeah. You need to think about Huey Long. When apparently you need to think about James Farley. I mean, he, I mean, and FDR just basically was just like, uh, you need to speak to uh, uh, James. You need to, you know, you need to speak to the postmaster general. And people were like, ow. But he just went ahead and like fired, like, you know, the entire staff of the post office. <laughs> okay. In my district. <laughs> I want relief. Well, then you should agree with us and he'll give you some some more people to work there. Wow. I mean, there were reported instances where Farley actually walked into the Oval Office and told the president, um, I know you just promised so-and-so a government job, but you need to run that by me, Mr. President. <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, actually, I can imagine. It, it It's just such a weird. But you know what? If you put in, put someone in charge of stuff like that, you yes. kind of want that kind of guy, right? Oh, like yes. you want an enforcer. You want somebody who reminds me looks of longingly at other people's kneecaps while they're holding a, you know, stick. You know, the, the, you know this is like the dean of discipline. Right. Okay, for, you know, uh, a high school. Right. You know, because um, you need a toughie for that job because yes. it's going to be rough and tumble. Uh, uh, Mr. Farley. Yeah. When I was reading some of that stuff, I was just like, wow. And we're talking about one of the most powerful presidents ever, ever. Right. Right. I mean, Think about yeah. <laughs> and somebody saying to them, "You're going to need to run that by me before you do you, something else like that." Oh, whoa. I mean, you know, Nia. Think about the the conversations we've had on this podcast um, uh, with uh, uh, our, our our good friend and colleague Bill Newman about how so many presidents of the second half of the twenty twentieth century. And into the 20th, 21st century have kind of sort of mirrored or modeled their behavior on Roosevelt as president, right? right. Um, you know, he's a really good example of the modern president, but yet the postmaster general. <laughs> so if I wanted this job, what I would need to do is become president, change the somehow get the the 1971 uh, laws law. changed yeah law changed yeah so we could go back to this to the way yes. of doing things in the old days and then i could take the position yeah i mean because <laughs> i mean I, I was reading this and i was just like oh my goodness um maybe it's good we don't have that anymore yeah i mean it, 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 and in listeners, I know we, we've explained how difficult the current postmaster general position is, but so like so many of the cabinet departments in this series, the position has evolved and changed over time. Right. Okay. Um, and it's just utterly fascinating how the position has changed in response to how the country's changed right? exactly i was going to say the expectations of the country yes. as we move away from you know positions where 
patronage patronage is the norm norm to then we then we expect the government to be different from you know, that this idea, yeah this idea of a career civil service in in in, in listeners i'm going to take you back to some of our earliest episodes um, where me and I talk about uh, what one needs to do to become the secretary of the department, <laughs> right? Okay, and how, you know, running the post office, okay, requires a lot of the same skill sets that you see with cabinet secretaries. Right, because, and we were talking about modernly, though. We were not yes. talking about historically yeah yeah these guys back in the day but you're right we, yes. when we were talking about unicorns looking yes. for people who are you know who are subject matter experts of that department who can run a large bureaucracy right. who are who are politically astute who right? can manage a budget who can manage can, a budget I mean, who, that's have, a... who have who have demonstrated their fidelity to whatever party or president, okay, who has picked them. Right. I mean, you're talking about a rather unusual person to be a cabinet secretary. And then you say on top of that, I'm going to need your department to run. A balanced budget. A balanced and, budget. And deliver people's mail. Every day. Every day. <laughs> I personally would say, oh, I'm sorry, somebody else is calling on the other line. I got to go, sir. Bye. You know, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> exactly. No. Thank you for this opportunity, sir, but I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome, Augie. Thank you so much. I, I honestly had no idea about this patronage system. Yes. So I'm going to have to go read up on Mr. Farley because he sounds like quite the character. Oh, very interesting person. I mean, it, like so many who um, uh, operated or moved around in uh, President FDR's orbit. Um, <laughs> we, was... we should do a whole season sometime on just sort of <laughs> the ins and outs of World uh, War II and FDR and the whole you know, we, we should we, probably, we should actually, we'd we should have to probably, write books probably. Yeah, we should probably uh, ask uh, Bill Newman back to go ahead and discuss um, uh, 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 the executive office of president. Because uh, it is just utterly fascinating how uh, the office of president has evolved and changed over time. Uh, but anyways, that's for a different for, series. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Nia. And listeners will be back with the next cabinet official next week. All right. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.